Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you want to be our shepherd. We're thankful that you want to meet our needs. And as our hearts have been prepared already through the singing, through the comments, through the picture of a little child, I would pray that our hearts would continue to be challenged through the preaching of your word. That as I open passages of scripture, that each one here would ask you to speak to them, help them to see areas in their life that they need to change to draw closer to you. Lord, I just pray that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to minister to each one that is here today. And I pray that each one here would be open to your speaking to them. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A dad came home from work late again, tired and irritated to find his five-year-old son waiting for him at the door. Daddy, may I ask you a question? Yeah, sure, what is it, replied the man. Daddy, how much money do you make an hour? That's none of your business. What makes you ask such a thing like that, the man said angrily. I just want to know. Please tell me, how much do you make an hour, pleaded the little boy. If you must know, I make $20 an hour. Oh, the little boy replied, head bowed. Looking up, he said, Dad, may I borrow $10? The father was furious. If the only reason you wanted to know how much money I make is just so you can borrow some to buy a silly toy or some other nonsense, then you march yourself straight to your room and go to bed. Think about why you're being so selfish. I work long, hard hours every day and don't have time for such childish games. The little boy quietly went to his room and shut the door. The man sat down and started to get even madder about the little boy's questioning. How dare he ask questions only to get some money? After an hour or so, the man calmed down and started to think he may have been a little too hard on his son. Maybe there was something he really needed to buy with that $10, and he really didn't ask for money very often. The man went to the door of the little boy's room and opened the door. Are you asleep, son, he asked. No, Daddy, I'm awake, replied the boy. I've been thinking maybe I was too hard on you earlier, said the man. It's been a long day, and I took my aggravation out on you. Here's that $10 you asked for. The little boy sat straight up, beaming. Oh, thank you, Daddy, he yelled. Then reaching under his pillow, he pulled out some more crumpled up bills. The man, seeing that the boy already had some money, started to get angry again. The little boy slowly counted out his money, then looked up at his dad. Why did you want more money if you already had some, the father grumbled. Because I didn't have enough. But now I do, the little boy replied. Daddy, I have $20 now. Can I buy an hour of your time? Wow. You know, being a good father is something that all fathers want, but it's easy to get off course like the father in the opening illustration. Maureen Downey has written a book entitled Restoring Fatherhood Can Benefit U.S. Culture. He says this, Children growing up without fathers is the number one social problem facing America today. Absentee fathers are not confined to the inner city, nor is it caused solely by out-of-wedlock fathering. It is a phenomenon of the suburbs as well, with divorce and workaholism as the two primary culprits. Don Feeder says, Fatherlessness is the most harmful demographic trend of this generation. It is the leading cause of declining child well-being in our society. It is also the engine driving our most urgent social problems from crime to adolescent pregnancy to child sexual abuse to domestic violence against women. 
According to a study published in the Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency, the best indicator of violent crime in a community is not race, income, or employment, but the proportion of fatherless families. Former U.S. Attorney General William Barr said, if you look at the one factor that most closely correlates with crime, it's not poverty, it's not employment, it's not education, it's the absence of the father in the family. This is why it's good for us to take pause. If you had a father in your home, you need to thank your father for being there and helping you. In fact, as we look at the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment says to honor your father. God repeated that in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6 when He says to honor your father. It's important to do that. And we see, too, that sometimes people don't have a father in the home. We're glad for the promise that we find in Psalm 68, 5. It says, God is a father to the fatherless. He knows our need, and He is there. But the emphasis of the message today is on being a good father. And as I look at at my points today, I'm going to be talking about, first of all, future fathers, then faltering fathers, and then faithful fathers, and then fatherless fathers. Now, if you say that fast, it's almost a tongue twister, so I'll try to do the best I can. But the last one, we look at fatherless fathers. That may be a little confusing to you, but I'll try to clarify it when we get to the end. But I also want you to understand that Every father fits in one of these categories. Everybody is a future father because they, before they come one. And then hopefully at some point you'll be a faithful father, but we all falter and we all come into this world fatherless. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, I don't know where you are today, but I trust that it will help you to be the kind of father that God wants you to be. I'm ta- I've entitled the message, Tools for Fathers. And so the first one we look at is tools for future fathers. And the man that I've chosen is Daniel. And the passage I want to look at is Daniel chapter 1. The Scripture doesn't tell us if Daniel ever got married or not. But as we think of future fathers, we never know if we're going to get married, but we need to prepare and be ready for it. And that's what God tells us to do. We see that Daniel had many qualities that would have well qualified him to become a good father. He would have been the kind of teenager that every dad would want his daughter to date and eventually marry. And that's the goal of every father, is to be a godly man. That's the important thing first. And we see that uh, that training has to start early. You can't wait until someone is an adult and then start training them. It has to be started when they're a child. As we look at Daniel, we see that his parents started that when he was just a child. It doesn't tell us in Scripture of the training that they gave him, but we do know that when he was 17... The Babylonians came into Jerusalem, overtook the city, and killed his parents and took him and a lot of other teenagers' captivity into Babylon. And then we see the example that he was when he was there in Babylon, and when we see that, we can just look back and see his parents had built a lot into his life because at 17, he was the example of a godly young man. What tools did Daniel have that would help any man become a good father? The first tool I see is the tool of inner conviction. We see here in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Now, try to put yourself in Daniel's position. It's a little hard to go back when you're 17, but try that. You're 17 years old, 
and the king and his armies have just come in, conquered your city, killed your parents, taken you away from your home, taken you to a new place, a new home, and just imagine the stress that you're going under. So that's where he is. But now we see what happened is the king chose certain of these young men from Jerusalem and actually from other countries too, and he brought them into a special place to give them special training. And what he did is he got the best of the best from these different countries, and his goal was to bring in there not just to educate them, but to get them to appreciate the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian worldview, their gods, their deities, and for them to think that Babylon is the greatest. And then once they were trained, they would be sent back to the countries they came from, and they would be leaders in those countries, helping them to become more like the Babylonian empire. So that's what they were doing, and he was one of those top guys that was selected to come there. And the overseer for these guys was a man named Ashpenaz. And as they got together, he announced them, I've got some great news for you guys. Take a look at the food that is out here. The food and the wine that you have to drink is the same thing that the king eats because they were to get the best food, they were to get the best education, the best of everything because they were supposed to be these leaders. Now, as they looked at all of that food and they looked at that wine and they looked at everything, how would a typical hungry teenager respond to a buffet like that? They would say, pass the food and stand back, right? But what was Daniel's response? It says that he remembered the word of God that he had studied for years and he knew that it was sin for him to eat the king's food and drink the wine. You go, why? What did the Bible say? What's wrong with food and drink? Well, apparently some of the food Daniel was to consume had been declared unclean in the Mosaic law. God had set certain things, and these were certain laws that they had to do, and there was certain food there that he was not to eat. It was also true that any meat that had been offered to pagan deities was not to be eaten, and he knew that. Furthermore, according to Eastern traditions, to share a meal was to commit oneself to a friendship and to acceptance to their belief and their worldview and what they were standing for. Also, the subtle flattery of gifts and favors, which entailed hidden implication of loyal support. So he knew, according to Scripture, he should not eat of the food and drink that was provided for him. Not only did he remember the Word of God, but he chose to obey it. It's one thing to know what the Bible says. It's another thing to obey it. A lot of people know it, but they don't do it. Not only did he remember, but he chose to do it. Where did that decision take place? We read in verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not sin. You know, we see here that the heart is the center of life. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The heart is the most important thing. Proverbs 23.7 says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's one thing to get people to outwardly conform to what's right, but the key is from the inside wanting to do what's right. And that's what we see as Daniel. He purposed in his heart. It wasn't his parents told him, you can't do this. They weren't even alive. They weren't even around there. It wasn't that his church told him what to do. They didn't even have a synagogue there. It wasn't that his peers told him what to do because most of them were gone. There were just three that were there around him supporting him, but probably most of the rest were we're continuing to do what the king wanted. Here we see that Daniel's stomach called for action. I'm hungry, and this looks good. But his mind called for obedience to what God says. 
He was willing to do what God wanted and put God first instead of the things that would please him. We also see that Daniel purposed in his heart before the temptation came. You can't wait until a temptation comes and say, now what should I do here? The temptation comes, the decision is made. He already knew when that temptation came, he knew what he should do. He knew the word of God. Proverbs 16.1 says, the preparation of the heart belongs to man, but the answer of the tongue comes from God. That's why we need to be preparing our heart. And his parents had been preparing him, teaching him the Word of God and helping him to take a stand. You may say, what's the big deal about eating the food? Nobody's going to know it anyway. Besides, they would probably understand. You know, here I am a slave, and they're telling me what to do. I know what I was taught, but hey, I'm in a different country now. There's new rules here, and who would fault me for that? He didn't care what anybody else said. He cared what God said. And God says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's what his desire was. He purposed in his heart. We see not only the tool of inner conviction, but the tool of knowledge and training. He was familiar with the Word of God, and he knew how to apply the Word of God to his life. As you read on in verses 8 through 14, and we won't take time to read it, he gave a courteous explanation. He was going to have to say to Ashpenaz, I can't eat this. He was going to have to say no. And Ashpenaz is kind of like the middleman. The king said to him, you need to give these guys the best food, the best diet. You need to give them the best education, the best training, because I want them to be the best. And if Ashpenaz is over them and these guys are failing these tests, guess who's in trouble? It's Ashpenaz. He doesn't really have a choice in this. He said, you better do what the king tells because I'm going to be in trouble if not. So we see Daniel is concerned about this, and how do I say no, and how do I do it in the right way? You know, we see Jesus over and over again. He was made fun of. He was ridiculed. They made charges against him. None of those were true. And you know how he could have responded? He said, I'm God, and he could have struck everybody dead. He didn't do that. We see he set an example for us so that we know how we should live. And in 1 Peter 2, 23, it says, When Jesus was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus gives us the example of how to overcome evil with good. And we see Daniel understood God because we see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. He's the same God. He doesn't change. So here's Daniel knowing he has to take a stand and say no But how does he do that in the right way? It's interesting how he gives that response. Look with me in Daniel chapter 1, verse 11. It says, so Daniel said to the steward, verse 12, please. Don't you like that? Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. He went to him and he didn't demand his rights and said, my God is bigger than your God and I'm telling you what to do and I'm not doing that. Somebody said, to me one time, approach Trump's content. There's a lot of truth to that. The Lord says, speak the truth in love. Daniel even came up with another opportunity. He says, I I value your life too. I don't want us to fail, but give us this test. Just try it for 10 days. He says, if it doesn't work, then we'll go back to it. But when he went to him, he did not demand. He said, please, a courteous request. Well, as we try to apply that to our life, we see the, per, the tool of personalization. How do we make it personal? Do you have the knowledge of how to be a good father? This is what we're talking about, future fathers. 
We're talking, I'm talking to teenagers here, maybe even children or other adults that they're not fathers yet. God says we need to know what kind of spiritual leader God wants us to be. I can remember uh, after Joyce and I got engaged, she said, you know what? We need to talk about how to, how to uh, raise our children the right way. And I go, why? We don't have any, you know? So I wasn't even preaching to myself. Here we have to understand what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to understand how we're to live a good life, how to be a godly person, how to raise children, and we need to do that ahead of time. Evidently, Daniel's parents did a good job with Daniel. Psalm chapter 78 is a chapter I'd like you to turn to. It's a passage that I think helps us understand how we are to be an example to our children and how we're to raise our children. In Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 8, it says this, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. I like there where David is saying we're to tell the generation to come. We're to pass this on. Verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who will be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. You see what he's saying? We're to repeat these things to the generation to come. We tell our children, tell our children, tell their children, and it just needs to continue. Verse, verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Why? That they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Talking about setting their hope in God. Kind of like the idea of, of wet concrete. Now, wet concrete is not easy to, uh, to uh, mold, but you've got to do it. And it takes work. And with our children, we've got to mold them. But then you know with concrete, as it starts to dry, it starts getting harder and harder to mold, and eventually it gets set. And so what he's saying is we need to teach our children and mold our children these biblical principles so that they can get their hearts set in God. And then once the concrete sets up, it's hard and it doesn't move. That's the idea. Now is the time to do that. Why? Verse 8 that they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Oh, as we talk about tools for future fathers, we need to set their hope in God. We need to find out what God's Word says. We need to apply it while they're young and while it's moldable and then let it become their own convictions. Well, now let's look at tools for faltering fathers. The person I selected is David. He is an example of a faltering father. He faltered in many ways. I'm just going to mention two. First of all, he fathered a child out of wedlock with Bathsheba. And then secondly, he was a permissive father with his son Adonijah. I can remember the first time I read 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 6 when it talks about his relationship with his son Adonijah, and I couldn't believe what I read. Here's what it says about David as he is raising his son Adonijah. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? I couldn't imagine that. 
That's as permissive as you can be. Never at one time in the life of his son, he said, why are you doing that? He never questioned anything. Now, some kids would go, I would like that kind of dad, right? Okay. In fact, I remember staying at my grandpa and grandma's one time, and I had two brothers, and um, we always got in a little bit of a, a tussle. No matter what was happening, that was just normal life. But we knew the next morning when mom came to pick us up, she would ask grandma, how did the boys do? And oh, we were prepared for that. We knew we were going to get in trouble. And she said to my grandma, how did they do? She said, oh, they were just wonderful little boys. And we thought, this is great, man. We'll go to grandma's all the time. But it's not the way to parent. And that's what we see here. He was a permissive parent. And you see later the consequences because his son tried to take the throne away from him. But as we look at those, those two situations there, he faltered in both areas and he faltered in many more. But what I want to share with you is that he came to the point when he saw his sin, he confessed his sin, he asked for forgiveness, and he went back to obeying God. And you know what God said about David later? Here is a man after God's own heart. What I want you to see, the first tool for a faltering father is the tool of hope. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There is no trial taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tested above that you're able, but will with the trial make a way of escape that you can bear it. Now, when it says way of escape, it doesn't say run from your problems. It says there are solutions to your problems. And you need to understand that no matter how much you have failed, God can help you get back to being faithful and to becoming a man after God's own heart. Aren't you glad that God is a God of second chances? Aren't you glad that God loves us in the midst of our sin and He just wants to help us? It's kind of like you saw in the, the little video clip, the boy knocked the milk over, the dad just knocked the milk over. He said, it's not that big a deal. And God says, I can forgive you and we can go on. The tool of hope. Some fathers are faltering in this life because they don't know what they're doing is wrong. I mean, the world has such a, a, a warped view. The world says, you know what? Marriage is not that important. It's not that big a deal. Disciplining your children is not that important. In fact, they would say spanking is illegal, which it's not. Just pick up Pastor Scott's uh, message here a couple months ago. And they'll say, you know what? And the world will say, you know what? Women can lead the home just as well as the men, and, and they should be in charge. And all, I mean, go on and on and on. There's different things like that that the world says is, is right, but it's wrong. And even if you do the wrong thing, not knowingly, the consequences are still there. And that's why some people are suffering consequences because they don't know the right way and they feel that pressure. Some people know what's right and they choose to do wrong anyway. And that's David. He knew what was right and he chose to do wrong. But the thing is, no matter if you're sinning ignorantly or you're sinning on purpose, the answer is the same. Just see what God's Word says, confess your sin, do right, and He can continue to bless you. We see the tool of hope but also a faltering fa father needs the tool of confrontation. Second Samuel chapter 12 gives the story of David and Bathsheba and his sin. And here what we see is David was living in sin and he was going on as if nothing was wrong. And then the prophet Nathan came to him and says, you are in sin. You are the man. It's good to have people come and hold us accountable and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. That's a good tool to help keep us on track. There's also the tool of repentance. We see in verse 13, he says, I have sinned. It doesn't do any good to know you're in the wrong if you're not willing to change. 
You're not going to become a faithful father if you don't admit it. And you've got to see the sin for what it is and repent. And then the tool of restoration. God forgives. We're so glad. It says in verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. It is so good to see God's forgiveness for us. But there still is the tool of consequence. We can't change consequences, what we've done. God can forgive us, but we still have to live with some of those consequences, and that's a good tool. In fact, the Scripture teaches us that He has given us the Bible that records the failing of man in the past so that we can learn from that and not do it. Experience is a good teacher, but it's better if you learn from the experiences of others instead of doing it yourself. But what we see here, consequences do have a teaching tool. In fact, we see even though that God forgave David, he said, your son will die. That's part of the consequences. Psalm 51, David said, my sin is always before me. Now, what's the tool of personalization? How do we apply this to us? Admit your sin, turn from it, and God will restore you. And God called David a man after his own heart. No matter how much we've faltered, we can be restored and be a faithful father. Well, what are the tools for a faithful father? If he's already faithful, he doesn't need anything else. Here's the problem. If you're a faithful father, it is so easy to falter. You cannot just reach a certain level and you got it made and it just stays there. You know, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. And there's certain things that you have to do to stay at that level. As we look at the example of tools for faithful fathers, I've chosen Job. Turn to Job chapter 1. We look at the man named Job, and many of you are familiar with Job. He was a faithful father, but here are some things that he did to keep him there and not to fall. We don't have any example of Job faltering, and I think it's because he did some of these things on a regular basis. The first tool is what I call the tool of family devotions. In Job chapter 1 and verse 5 says, So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of his children. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Just briefly, the context here is that Job's sons, it says they were feasting. Basically, they were just having... um, birthday party, family get-together. It wasn't anything that was wrong. It was just family time spending together. It's interesting as you read the context there, they did the work and they invited their sisters to come. And I think that's a neat thing that you've got brothers that take care of the sisters and bring them in. And it's really one big happy family is what's, what's going on. And yet Job is saying, you know what? I want to offer sacrifices in case they might do something wrong in the future. Now, you understand they didn't have church back then to go to. Every family unit was responsible for their own worship. The dad, he was the one that would oversee that. And they had the altar where they did the sacrifices. That's why some of us who are older, we can remember pastors talking about instead of family devotions, we're going to have, you should have family altar. And that's where it came from. You just need to lead your family. And that's what he was doing here. And, And his kids had not done anything wrong, but it says he rose up early every day. This is important to make sure that that their relationship was right with God. And it says that he killed an animal for each one of their kids. He was concerned about each of the children individually. And he was concerned about their needs, and, and not that they were doing anything wrong now, but they might. It's so important for us to pray for our children and for us to set the example to help and to take those kind of precautions. 
That's why the second point is the tool of taking precautions. In verse 5, he says, it may be that they would curse God in their heart. They hadn't done it yet, but it could be. The Lord says we need to take precautions. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10, it says that we need to prove what is acceptable to God. A lot of times people say, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. Prove to me that this is wrong. You know, and I go, it's the wrong way. You're looking at the wrong way. You shouldn't have to prove that something is wrong. You need to be able to prove that it's okay to do it. It's a whole lot safer that way. I use the illustration of Russian roulette. You got a six shooter. You put a bullet in there. You spin it. I give it to you and say, put it up to your head and pull the trigger. Would anybody do that? You probably go, no. And I'd say, why not? Prove to me that it'll hurt you. You know, you can't prove to me that it'll hurt you. Chances are five out of six, it won't hurt you. Go ahead and try it. You know, that's what a lot of people want to do with sin. I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't think it'll hurt me. What God is saying is when you put that bullet in and you spin it and put it up to your head, you go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I want to make certain that bullet is not in the chamber. In fact, I'd probably move it way down here. I wouldn't want it one before, just in case when you pull the trigger, does it kind of, you know, I want to know for certain. In fact, even I wouldn't even want that bullet in there. I wouldn't even want to take an empty gun and, and, and pull the trigger on it. That's not even a wise thing. See, God is concerned about our safety. He says, you need to make certain that everything you do is perfectly acceptable with God. Romans 14 says, if in doubt, don't do it. And that's what he wants. Take the precautions. We see the tool of fearing God, Job 1.1. Job was one who feared God. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I see also the tool of suffering and worship. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. As we look at the context here, what happened to Job, and most of you know the story, he living a perfect, upright life, and Satan came to God and said, the only reason he loves you is because he's got it made. He is wealthy. He's got a large family. Everything's going for him. You know, good health. But if things weren't going well, you know, it'd be a different story. And God said, no, it's not true. And you know the story how that his family died. His children all died. His servants all died. All of his livestock died. His business was ruined. He had nothing. And we see that servant, messenger after messenger came to him in the matter of minutes and gave him each of those stories. Now, many of you have suffered tragedy, but probably nothing that severe that quickly. And how did he respond? Verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and said, why me, God? Why is this happening to me? That's not what it says. That's what most people say. When we see different things taking place in the world, different calamities, they go, why does God allow this? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? What's going on? Why is this suffering? That's what people want to know. That's what they say, but that isn't what he said. He said he fell to the ground and worshiped. Wow. In the midst of all of that, he worshiped. What is worship? Giving God the worth that is due his name. He goes on, and this is how he worshiped. He said, naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How many people, when tragedies hit, do the newspapers say, blessed be the name of the Lord? I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen that yet. But that's what he says. I came into this world with nothing. And when I leave, I, t- I have nothing. So whatever I have in the meantime, it's not mine. God, it's all God's. He gives it to me. He can take it away. It's not mine. I'm just a steward. And he worshiped God. 
Oh, that's what helps faithful fathers stay faithful as they keep worshiping God in the midst of the trials. We also see the tool of consistency in Job chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Wow. I don't think any of us could probably say that's true of our life. We've slipped up in some of those areas. But we see the truth here. God didn't do anything wrong. We can't charge God for anything. The tool of consistency. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, He that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. It is so easy to fall. Just a little step. But one little step leads to another and it keeps going and going and going. We've got to stay consistent up there. Well, then I said tools for a fatherless father. You may be thinking, what in the world is that? Well, Nicodemus was just as confused as you are. God designed us so that we can't get into this world without an earthly father, right? You got that figured out. He also says you can't get into heaven without a heavenly father. Do you figure that out? The Bible says we're born into this world sinners, and it only takes one sin to keep us out of heaven. Uh, James 3.10, Whosoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us deserve heaven. And Nicodemus was confused. He came to Jesus by night, and he says, What do I do to enter heaven? And Jesus said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time when his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There's got to be the physical birth, and then there's got to be a spiritual birth. There's got to be two different births. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish and go to hell, but have everlasting life. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 3 says, Grace and peace from God our Father. What it says, if you can become a child, that means you weren't a child until you became one. John 8, 44 says, We're born into this world, sinners, and we are of our father, the devil. People don't like to think that, but that's the truth. We are born in this world, and we are in Satan's family. And that's why God said, you have to be born again. You have to be born again into God's family. Romans 6 says, we are adopted into God's family. There has to be that time when we understand that we are fatherless. We do not have a heavenly father. We are fatherless. Our father is Satan. And we come to that point point. we say, oh God, now I get it. I'm a sinner and I deserve to go to hell. There's nothing I can do to get to heaven. God loved me and Jesus died for me. He's offering me this gift of eternal life. And there has to be that time when I ask for that gift of eternal life. And when I do that, he takes me out of Satan's family. He adopts me into God's family. And then I have a heavenly father. All of us need a heavenly father on this Father's Day. And if you've never accepted Christ, your personal Savior, this is the best time on Father's Day to ask him to be your heavenly father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words that I have shared, that you have taken those and applied them with understanding to each one that is here in this service. I pray especially if there's someone here who has not asked you to be their Heavenly Father, that they would understand now that they need to do that and that they would understand that they deserve hell because they're in Satan's family. 
And Lord, if there's anyone here today who wants to receive you as their heavenly Father, I would ask that they would just pray silently to themselves words like these. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm lost. I'm not in your family. I deserve hell. Right now, I want you to save me from hell, and I want you to make me a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. If anybody prayed that prayer here today, we just want to welcome you into the family of God, but we'd like to know it so that we can encourage you. There's a place in the bulletin you can just write down that you made that decision. You can put it in the offering plate or you can turn it in at the guest reception so that we can